So we're going to continue in our study of the book of Revelation, and our Ventura campus will be joining us for this sermon. Let's let them know that we love them so much. And we'll open up in our Bibles now to Revelation chapter 8. The book of Revelation chapter 8 is where we find ourselves. We'll study the whole chapter, as has been our habit for the last few weeks, a chapter a week, which allows us to continue moving forward in the book and kind of get the big picture and a fair level of detail. We don't get to always dive as deep as we want to at the pace that we're setting, but we have, as I mentioned in previous weeks, provided a lot of different sermons for you on connected topics and theological issues online. So you can get those anytime and it'll kind of bolster your understanding of the book of Revelation. And if you miss a week in our study in the book of Revelation, you want to get that. You want to go online and catch up because these concepts are pretty deep. They're pretty heavy and they build upon themselves as we progress through the book. So if you've missed a week, you've missed a lot and you want to go get that sermon. The title of today's sermon is The Mercy of God Revealed in His Measured Wrath. The mercy of God revealed in his measured wrath. You'll remember now that we are in chapters pertaining to God's wrath poured out on an unrepentant world. God's justice come to earth. God's judgment meeting evil and its perpetrators. And it's pretty heavy stuff. But through it all, we see God's mercy revealed in the way that he does bring judgment and justice. And we'll see that pretty clearly in the text today. So we'll read the whole chapter, we'll pray, and we'll get into the study. Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse 1. It says, And when he, that is Jesus, broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden incense, or excuse me, a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. And the first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. And they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters, and the name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun and a third of the moon And a third of the stars were smitten so that a third of them might be darkened and the day might not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. And I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe 
to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Lord, surely your word is holy. And at times it's also heavy. This is heavy subject matter and content in your word today. Your justice come to earth, your judgment against sin, your wrath on the unrepentant world is a heavy thing. It perhaps makes us today really thankful for Jesus, our Savior, who through our faith in him has forgiven our sins according to his work on the cross and has delivered us from the wrath to come. Thank you, God. May that be the source and the center of our joy, that Jesus is our Savior. May many more here in this room and in our community put their faith in Jesus and so be delivered from the wrath to come. May we continually rejoice in our salvation. And may we be really serious about preaching the gospel to our community and to the rest of the world in light of your coming judgment. We, like you, Lord, want many to be saved for few to experience your judgment. Thank you for our salvation. And we pray today that you just give us understanding of your word and help us to apply it to our lives. Help us to see how it intersects with our lives and how we ought to live in light of it. Please help me now to teach and preach in a way that's faithful to you and brings you glory and helps the church to worship and obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I said before, we're kind of jumping into the middle of some heavy stuff here in chapter 8, and I wish I could take time every week to sort of recap where we are and give it context and bring you up to speed, but we would all be here for longer than you want to be here. But I will say this, remember that in chapter 4, John, who is receiving this vision from God, and the vision is primarily about Jesus, was called up to heaven to be shown the things which would take place before Jesus came, to show the things in the end, at the end times. And first he saw a glimpse of heaven. He saw the throne there, and the throne was the centerpiece of heaven, and God sitting on the throne. And that spoke of God's sovereignty and his power. And he saw all the angels around the throne who never ceased to say day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And that God is has all the attention of heaven and creation in that realm. And he saw there in the hand of him who sits on the throne, God, a scroll, you'll remember. And that this scroll was written on front and back, meaning it was comprehensive. It had a lot to say. And it was sealed with seven seals, meaning it was incredibly important. It was of great consequence. And nobody was found in all of heaven or earth who could open the throne except for one, Jesus who is called there in the book of Revelation, the lion and the lamb. He was able to open the scroll and reveal its content. Its content is the judgments, the justice of God come to earth. And every time one of those seals was broken, more of God's judgment was unleashed on the earth. And the reason that Jesus was able to open the scroll, the reason that Jesus is the one who can bring God's judgment to earth is because Jesus is the one who brought God's mercy to earth. Amen? Jesus is the one who went to the cross for us, who died in our place because God loves us and wants to forgive us of our sins that we might have forgiveness and new life and eternal life. 
And all of this is according to God's mercy because we, the scriptures say, are sinners who deserve judgment. But because God is a merciful God, he's extended mercy through the person of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross for us. Jesus is shown to be in the book of Revelation, the lamb of God who was slain for us. And because he brought God's mercy to earth, he is the lion of God who can bring God's justice to earth. And that's where we find ourselves in the book of Revelation now. God's justice is being unfolded. His judgment is being unleashed. His wrath has come to earth. Sin is finally and will fully be dealt with. Evil is meeting an answer here in the book of Revelation. And that's where we find ourselves. And the six seals have been broken. And when we get to chapter eight now, we get to the seventh seal. It says in verse one, and when he, Jesus, broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. You'll remember in the previous six seals that when each one was broken, a certain judgment was unleashed unleashed on earth. This is a different seal now. This seal's broken and seven angels with seven trumpets come forward. Each one of these trumpets, at least the first six of them, are gonna be further judgment and justice of God come to earth. And then when we get to the seventh trumpet, from that blow will come seven bowls that will also be poured out on the earth and they will also contain the wrath of God. So we have the scroll judgments, the final seventh seal is broken and we have the trumpet judgments, the seventh and final trumpet is blown and we have the bowl judgments and that'll progress over the next several chapters. What also will progress is the severity of God's judgment. It doesn't all come at once in its full power. God shows that he's merciful and he's kind by patiently and progressively judging the world in order that he might continually leave room for repentance. The humanity that's in rebellion to God might be warned of what's happening and so repent of their sins and be saved from their sins and from the wrath to come. God is revealing his justice progressively and patiently because he's kind. Let's remember the kindness of God. But let's also remember the justice of God because it's inescapable in the book of Revelation that there is a day of judgment. There is a day of wrath. And in the chapters we're beholding, it has come. Now it's easy for us then, mostly as Christians here, to try to get ourselves out from underneath the weight of the text. Right? Because those that are being judged are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. So if we're a Christian, we say, well, that's not me. I'm out from underneath the weight of it. And furthermore, these things, depending upon your interpretive lens of the book, are far off. They're in the future. Maybe not that far off, but still at a future day. Or maybe you interpret the book of Revelation differently and they already happened in the past and you don't have to worry about them. And maybe there's a pre-trib rapture and the church isn't going to be here anyway. So we don't, we don't have to be concerned about these things. But let me try to do what I believe God would have us do. Feel the weight of the text, even for us as Christians. There's two ways in which we could think about that. Number one is, if this world is truly going to be judged for sin, then we ought to be serious about preaching the gospel of the forgiveness of sins. I mean, it ought to be the endeavor of our lives. We ought to give ourselves to it. 
We ought to be open to sharing the gospel with people that we know. We ought to be open to going to different places in the world that need to hear the gospel. We ought to be financing the going forth of the gospel. We ought to be investing in the good news of the kingdom being preached. The world is really going to be judged. And surely that will include people that we know and love and care about. And we ought to be serious as the church, as Christians, about the preaching of the gospel. Amen? The second thing that we ought to realize is this. If sin is going to be judged, and in such a harsh way, then we ought to be aware of times and areas and spaces and places in our life where we underestimate the badness of sin, if I could say it that way. We, we, we have a tendency to make light of sin. If there's anything that we're good at as people and as Christians, it's justifying our own sin, rationalizing our own sin, right? Well, I was wounded in this way and that wasn't fair, so I feel fine about acting out in this way. What they did to me was unexcusable and so I feel fine about my unforgiveness or my bitterness. This situation in my life is unfair, so I feel fine about indulging in these things. Well, what she does is way worse, so I'm not that bad, so it's okay. You see, we're really good at making our sin okay, but what the book of Revelation is telling us is that God will judge sin radically, and it won't be pretty. Therefore, sin is not, nor is it ever, okay. I mean, if God had to give his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins, if he was beaten and mocked and scourged, if his back was ripped open with a cat of nine tails and his limbs were nailed to the cross and there he suffered and bled a horrific death, if he truly felt the weight of our sin upon him so much so that he would say, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Then surely sin is serious. If Christ died to pay the price for sins, and sin and evil will be judged in this horrific manner, excuse me, then surely sin is serious. So perhaps then as Christians, we ought to think about the sin in our own lives that we excuse, the sin in our lives that we justify, and begin to repent of those things. Maybe one thing that the book of Revelation helps us do is to see sin for what it really is. And so to recommit ourselves by the power of the Holy Spirit, the help of God, to flee from sin, to pursue righteousness. If sin is going to be judged in this way, then it's bad. If sin is going to be judged, then we ought to give everything that we have to the preaching of the gospel to every human being because nothing matters more. What we also see in this text is that the severity of God's judgment is stunning, even in heaven. In heaven, where God's glory is always prevalent, in heaven, where Jesus, the lamb that was slain for our sins, is present, in heaven, where the angels never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, when God's justice and judgment and wrath are released, heaven falls into stunned silence. Again, verse one, and when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Try to imagine this if you can. Because thus far, these visions have been full of noise. 
right? John has been seeing things and he's been hearing peals of thunder. And he's been hearing the voices of multitudes that are innumerable singing. And these mighty living creatures that never cease to cry out, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And these visions have been full of thunderous sound in heaven. And now, as the severity of God's judgment is upped, and the seventh seal is broken, and the trumpets come forth, all of that stops. Even the angels who never cease to say, holy, 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 fall silent. All of heaven is stunned with the reality of God's judgment. There's a solemnity to it. We reflect this in our culture all the time. Something solemn, something difficult takes place and we say, you know what? Let's all have a moment of silence. Now, a moment is not that long. But even in that moment, we feel the weight of it, don't we? When someone says, let's all take a moment of silence, we do this, okay. We bow our heads for about half a moment, and then we start looking around. How long is this moment? (laughs) Sheesh, a moment is forever. And by half a moment, we've lost what we're being solemn about. We're just wondering, when does this moment end? And who else is thinking this? This is half an hour. Perhaps the loudest place in all of the universe falling into stunned silence. Now heaven is outside the time-space continuum. There is no time there. But for John, who's an earthly being, seeing the vision, there is time. And he says, for about half an hour, it fell dead silence. Can you imagine the growing sense of intensity as this one minute, two minute, four minute, 15 minute, 20 minute, 27 minute, as this time stretches on. That's sobering. God's wrath is a terrible thing. Even the angels seem to sense something special in verse six. And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. This was not lightly done. It wasn't a flippant thing. We ought not to take lightly the wrath of God. These angels who stand before the presence of God, who know a thing or two, have to prepare themselves. I don't know what that means. Do they ruffle their feathers? Do they straighten their tie? Do they shine the trumpet? I don't know. They prepare themselves for the solemn thing that's about to happen. And silence precedes it. I want you to notice, though, and I think this is important, what's absent from the scene. Because I think this is part of the silence. What's absent from the scene is any objection to God's judgment whatsoever. There's no dissenting voice. There's no opposition opinion. There's no pundits. There's there's none of this. There's no shaking of the fist. You see, in this world now, there's a lot of opposition to the judgment and the justice of God. People don't want to hear about a just God. People don't want to hear about a God who might have judgment. People don't want to hear about wrath, and they shake their fists a lot. Where were you, God, when? Why did you allow this God? This is unfair. This is unjust. And we pretend ourselves as culture to be more moral than God. And everyone always says, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have a few questions. Shut up. And all of heaven does. 
I think it's profound what's absent from the scene is any dissenting voice, any question about the justice of God. In the end, God will be shown to be just and sin and evil will be shown to be what they are. And what, what can be said about God bringing his justice after he brought such great mercy in Christ? What can be said about the lion who delivers a judgment when the lamb has already brought mercy to us? Mercy has been extended long before justice ever came. Mercy was extended through the person and the work of Jesus Christ to all of humanity. Mercy was extended. But when you refuse mercy, there's nothing left but judgment. If you go before the judge and you get a doozy of a speeding ticket and it's $800 and you stand before him and he says to you, I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to reduce it to 30 bucks. And you say, nah, no, I don't want that. <laughs> you idiot. <laughs> don't refuse mercy. Because when you refuse mercy, there's nothing left but justice. And so the judge would say, Son, I tried to extend mercy to you, but you've refused it, and now there's only justice, $800. God has extended mercy to the world in the saving work of Jesus Christ upon the cross, and if you refuse it, then there's nothing left but justice, judgment of sin and of you. Don't refuse the mercy of God through Jesus Christ. There'll be no argument on that day. There'll be no opposition. There'll be no shaking of the fists. The lamb will be present who was slain for you. And the lion will deliver justice. But I want you to notice, because I think this is also important, what is not absent from the scene. Silence there in heaven. What's absent is any opposition, any dissenting voice, any objection. But what is not absent are your cries for justice. Your prayers for deliverance. They're present there. They're part of how and why God deals with evil and sin in the world because we are affected by evil and sin. Our own and others and the results on it in our world. And we as God's people have had throughout history a collective cry for the oppressive breaking, grinding effects of sin. We, as God's collective people, have cried throughout history for deliverance and for justice to come, for Satan to be dealt with, for death to be defeated, for the effects of evil to be undone once and for all. And these play part in God's justice coming. Verse three. And another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer. And much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God. God has heard the prayers out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar and he threw it to the earth. In some wonderful way, what's being pictured here are God's people's cries throughout all time being caught up in the justice of God and we're shown that God hears us. Dear brothers and sisters, I know that sometimes it feels like God is far away in our deepest places of pain. 
I know when our grandchildren are diagnosed, when our spouse has fallen ill, when all of our security has collapsed, I know that when something is done to us, it defies the scripture, and that sometimes it feels as though God is so absent, but the text is telling us that God is not absent. That all of our collective cries for deliverance and justice, justice go up before him like incense and there will come a time where they're gathered together and thrown back to the earth in God's just response of dealing with sin. From Israel's cries to deliverance when they're enslaved by Egypt to Christ's cry of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To the martyr's cries for justice throughout all the years and all the world. To your cries when you're suffering the effects of tragedy, sin in this world, the effects of your own sin and the sin of others. To our cries for sin to be dealt with and Satan defeated and death done away with and his righteous rule to come. God has heard all of these prayers and in response, he's dealing with the evil that has so profoundly affected us and our families. God hears us. He's a God of justice. All wrong will be dealt with. Jesus wanted to encourage us with this when he spoke about prayer in Luke 18. One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to illustrate their need for constant prayer and to show them that they must never give up, literally not lose heart. He said, there was a certain judge in a certain city. He's going to give a parable by contrast. He's going to contrast God with a certain judge. There was a judge in a certain city. He said, Jesus said, who was a godless man with great contempt for everyone. A widow of that city came to him repeatedly, appealing for justice against someone who had harmed her. The judge ignored her for a while, but eventually she wore him out. I fear neither God nor man, he said to himself, but this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Now here comes the contrast. Then the Lord said, Learn a lesson from this evil judge. Even he rendered a just decision in the end. So don't you think God will surely give justice to his chosen people who plead with him day and night? Or will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. I know what it feels like to be overwhelmed by the effects of sin in this world, but don't lose heart. But what do I do? Jesus gave this parable that we might know we ought to at all times pray. And what happens in the book of Revelation helps us to maintain focus and hope, cling to Jesus, to not lose heart, to know that there is coming a day where evil is faced and confronted and justice is brought to the world. And at this point in the text, it unfolds horrifically in these trumpets, verse six. And the seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, mixed with blood, excuse me. And they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. Well, 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 here we have some old school hail, fire and brimstone. Hail, 
There's fire. It's mixed with blood. This is... So the question is always there. Is this, like, literal? Or is this symbolic? I mean, is there really going to come a time on earth where God judges part of the world with hail, fire from the sky, and blood? Or is this some picture of how radical God's justice will be. Is this some picture just meant to to grab our attention, show us that something is going to come from heaven that's going to be profound? Well, that depends on the way you interpret the book of Revelation. Well, Brett, what do you think? I, I, I don't know. What is clear is that this is from heaven, that it's from God. But what's also clear God has done these very things literally before. It wanted it all be a new thing if God enacted judgment through hail and fire and brimstone. After all, isn't that exactly what he did with Sodom and Gomorrah? Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. God has done this before. After all, isn't that what he did to Pharaoh and Egypt when they enslaved Israel and refused to let him go. So there was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very severe, such as had not been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck all that was in the field through all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. The hail also struck every plant in the field and shattered every tree of the field. God's going to deal with Gog and Magog, whoever they are. One day it'll be the same thing, Ezekiel says. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with them. And I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him. A torrential rain with hailstones, fire, brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. And they will know that I am the Lord. From whence this judgment comes is unmistakable. And God says that he'll deal with all wickedness in such a way. The psalmist wrote this. Upon the wicked, he will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. That's heavy stuff. Whether you say this is symbolic of some form of God's judgment, which is valid, The book of Revelation is full of symbolism. Or you say, this is, God has done it before. This is literally the way this is going to unfold. The point is the same. This is judgment from God to deal with sin, evil, and painfully those who have refused mercy. And that's close to home. But I also want us to see here, as radical as this is, the way that God is acting with mercy even here. Because only partial devastation comes. Did you notice the one-third paradigm that runs throughout the chapter? One-third of the earth was burned. One-third of the trees. Later on, one-third of the sea and one-third of the ships and one-third of the creatures in the sea. There's this one-third paradigm running through it. In other words, God's justice is measured. It's not just unleashed all at once in total devastation, though he would be just if he did so. All sin is punishable by death, the scriptures say. But he's merciful. It's as though God is letting out warnings through the previous couple chapters and now. 
It's not full devastation, it's, it's partial. These are, are warnings from God, even in the midst of being judgment from God. God is measured. He's restrained in his wrath, for God loves mercy. It says in the book of Isaiah that God waits on high to have compassion on you. God prefers to extend mercy and grace to sinners. And all the while, he's leaving room with this one-third paradigm, his measured wrath, that people might repent and be saved. And as we saw last week, many are during the tribulation. We saw last week that there was pictured there in heaven a multitude that no one could number from every tongue, tribe, and nation who had come out of the great tribulation. Many people who were saved... But their faith in Jesus Christ saw the wrath and said, oh my gosh, he's the savior. They were saved and martyred during the tribulation period. An innumerable number, many will get saved. But astoundingly, many will refuse. Even though they know the source of this wrath. They say in chapter four, hide us from him who sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. And many will refuse to repent even though God is leaving room. Look at the end of chapter six. We see that vividly. Or excuse me, the end of chapter 9, pardon me. Verse 20, Revelation 9. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, look at these words, astounding, did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. God was trying to save them from worshiping demons. And the idols of gold and silver brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. These lesser things that we worship all the time, these false gods. Verse 21, and they did not repent of their murders, nor their sorceries, nor their immorality, nor of their thefts. Nobody can question whether God is merciful with this one-third paradigm. His wrath is being delivered out patiently, progressively. It's measured, showing his kindness and his mercy. It also shows that he's in complete control. This is not environmental changes. This is not global warming. This is not pollution. This exacting sort of thing shows that God is in complete control and that God is the source of these things directly at this moment in history. And then the second trumpet sounds, verse 8. And the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speak. Oh, I was in the wrong chapter, excuse me. Back in chapter 8, verse 8. And the second angel sounded. And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. So the last trumpet affected the land right? The earth was scorched, the trees and the grass. This one affects the sea. And it says it's something like a mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. Maybe it's a meteor. Maybe it's a comet. Maybe that's just symbolic language of unbelievable power from heaven for who else could hurl a mountain on fire into the sea? Either way, the results are the same. Judgment is common. It's undeniable from whence it comes. And either way, the mercy is evident. One-third, again, 
partial destruction, restrained, measured, patient wrath, God always leaving room for repentance. And then the third trumpet sounds, verse 10. And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. And the name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. So the first trumpet affected land, the second trumpet affected the sea, and the third affects fresh water. And you'll kind of notice something here, that these are all places and resources from which humanity draws life. We need the land, we plant crops there, and we, we grow herds, and we, we reap food from there, and we need the sea. We need to see in our environment, we need the food that comes from there, and there's recreation there, and there's refreshment there, and we need fresh water. We, we can't live without fresh water. And you'll see here that perhaps what God is doing is challenging all these other places from where humanity thinks they draw life to draw their attention to the true source of life, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said to the woman at the well, you drink this water and you'll thirst again, but you drink the water that I have to give to you and you will never thirst again. Living water. Perhaps God is confronting our fresh water supply to draw in mercy, humanity's repentance, to living water, eternal life through Jesus Christ. At any rate, he does it by hurling the star into the water and the star has a name and it's a peculiar name, Wormwood. Nobody's naming their kids Wormwood this year. <laughs> wormwood. What is Wormwood? It's the only time in the whole New Testament that the word is used, but it's used eight times in the Old Testament. And it's always used in the Old Testament to speak of the bitterness of idolatry. Because Wormwood is actually a shrub. And its roots and its stems and its leaves are super bitter. And people used to make a liqueur from it. Right? What, is that how you say it? A liqueur? What is that? Like an after-dinner liquory thing? They used to make this drink from it that was so toxic that it's been banned in almost every country in the world. It's like moonshine, man. You can't make stuff from wormwood. You get busted for that stuff. It's toxic. It's bitter. And it's used to speak of the bitterness of sin and idolatry in the lives of humanity. Look how it's used in the book of Jeremiah. Then the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, okay, not obeyed, which I set before them, have not obeyed my voice nor walked according to it, but have walked after the stubbornness of their heart, after the Baals, there's idolatry, false gods, lesser gods, as their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poison water to drink. So if we take a clue from the Old Testament, there's seven more times where it's used just like this. Wormwood is this picture of the bitterness of rebellion. It's this picture of the toxicity of sin. And there's a profound lesson in that for us. Doesn't sin have a certain toxicity to it? Doesn't it leave a certain sort of bitterness in our lives? Didn't we come to a realization of that before we were Christians? And don't we now, even as Christians, as God's people, don't we realize that there's a toxicity to sin when we let it run in our lives? There's a bitter fruit that comes from sin in our lives. We often think, well, I'm getting away with this and there's no repercussions and there's no effect and I'm not hurting anybody else. Oh, but dear brother, 
you're so profoundly hurting yourself. And that will have an effect on others because there is a toxicity to sin. There's a bitterness to sin. And this picture of wormwood is getting at that. And perhaps what it's trying to draw our attention to as the fresh waters all go bitter is that we have a sweet Savior. We have been offered living water. The toxicity, the bitterness of sin have been dealt with. Jesus said in John 10.10 that Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy, but that he has come to give us life and life abundant. There's a bitter toxicity in sin, but there's a sweetness to our Savior and salvation and life in him. And then the final trumpet for the chapter blows, the fourth trumpet. And it says in verse 12, And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were smitten, so that a third of them might be darkened, and the day might not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. So now this judgment is affecting the heavens and the things that we see as relative constants in heaven. The sun and the moon, we always count on the sun coming up. It seems to be stable and the moon is there and the stars and we can navigate by them and see the constellation. We're in awe with one of them falls and now those things are challenged. Again, measured, a third of them darkened by God. The daylight affected. This is normal Old Testament judgment sort of language. Isaiah uses sort of language, the darkening of the heavenly lights. Amos uses kind of language. Joel uses kind of language. Ezekiel uses kind of language. Look what God said he would do to Pharaoh through Ezekiel. And when I extinguish you, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. There's that language. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon will not give its light. All the shining lights in the heavens I will darken over you and will set darkness on your land. So this failure of the heavenly lights, God affecting them is judgment language. Jesus used the same language in talking about his second coming in Matthew 24. In Matthew 24, Luke 21, better, thank you. (laughs) Jesus speaking said, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth, dismay among nations and perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then, speaking of the second coming, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. But when these things begin to take place, straighten up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. We see this language all over the Bible. The sun and the stars and the moon, their light affected. And quite possibly, and I think from the words of Jesus, that these will be literal phenomena at that time. It may just be symbolic that things that seem so stable, the rising of the sun and the light reflected off the moon and the stars and the constellations, that everything in our life that seemed fixed now comes unhinged. That we might look to the only one who is fixed and eternal. It may be that, but it wouldn't be unprecedented for God to darken things when he's dealing with sin and judging sin. After all, isn't that what happened when Jesus Christ died upon the cross, that the sun went dark for three hours? It wouldn't be unprecedented. 
It's not too much to think. And then we have verse 13, this merciful call from the sky. And I looked and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet and of the three angels who are about to surround. Sound, excuse me. This is nothing other than God endeavoring to get the attention of people. These things are happening. Not everyone is getting it. He sends this creature. I believe it's one of the four creatures from chapter four. Remember John said he saw four angelic creatures, these seraphim, and one of them was like a flying eagle, he said. And it's telling people, listen, these things are from God. This is woe. This is judgment. Later on in chapter 14, God will send an angel to just preach the gospel from the sky. Look at this. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. When heaven goes silent at the beginning of this chapter, the one thing that is absent is any voice of opposition, any challenge to the justice of God, because God has been and God will be shown to be merciful and kind and gracious at every corner and to be doing everything that he can to get the attention of humanity to communicate to them that he loves them and wants to forgive their sins through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now here's where we end. We say, okay, well, that's cool, Brit. That's cool. Book of Revelation is cool. That's, that's out there a bit. God's going to do that. He's going to judge sin. But for just a moment here, give me 30 seconds. Let's talk about the sin in our own lives. Because if God is going to judge sin in this way, then we should deal with sin right now. And if God is so desperately trying to get a hold of people who are in rebellion to him, how much more is he endeavoring to speak to those who are his own? The question that ought to be asked, I think, perhaps part of the way to the text is, in what ways is God trying to get my attention about my own sin and I'm not listening? Hide us from him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. In what ways in our own Christian lives are we saying, hide me from the throne, the sovereignty of God is what that speaks of. You know what we do. We try to hide portions of our hearts. We try to justify parts of our sinful pain, their bitterness, or unforgiveness. We try to compartmentalize our sin that we feel like we can keep private. But all sin is laid bare before the eyes of God. Where are we trying to hide from God about the issues in our lives? Where are we not listening? What is God trying to say to you that you're not getting? What is he calling you to? Or what maybe is God calling us away from? What is he saying? Listen, that is toxic bitterness. That's the very sin my son bled for. I'm calling you out of it. I'm calling you away from it. I'm just going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 3. I'm just going to read it. We're not going to put it up. 
says, the Holy Spirit says this. Just listen. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they tested me in the wilderness. Be careful, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. You must warn each other every day while it's still called today so that none of you be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Remember what it says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Man, I know what it is to harden my heart against the warnings of God. I know what it is to be in a gathering like this and feel that, that, that prick of conviction and to rationalize it away. Nope, I can do that because my daughter died of cancer. Nope, I can do that because it's not hurting anyone else. Nope, I can do that because it's not that big of a deal. I'm not as bad as them and it's not out of control. Don't harden your hearts. Every time we harden our hearts, they get harder and it gets more and more difficult to hear the kind, loving voice of God. If God is wanting to lovingly deal with sin in your life now, let him do so for he loves you and he delivers us from the wormwood, from the toxic bitterness of sin and brings us into the sweetness of forgiveness in a relationship with him. How good he is. Amen. Lord, these truths are wonderful, though they're hard. And we just ask that you'd help us make application as it's trying to do here at the end of our own lives. Don't let us escape the weight of the text and think, well, that's old stuff or maybe someday. Help us to examine our lives now in light of your righteousness, in light of how you view sin. Help us to see our own sin more like you see it. And so to flee from it by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Help us, Holy Spirit. Help us to do that, Lord. Thank you for the gift of repentance where we can repent and be forgiven. And times of refreshing come from being in your presence. Thank you for the gift of confessing to you that when we confess, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Thank you for the sweetness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves us and gave himself for us. Help us to enjoy that and live in a manner worthy of that. In Jesus' name, amen.